You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Esther, chapter 5. Esther 5. C.S. Lewis said that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. And the book of Esther is a textbook case of God remaining anonymous. God's hidden in this book. God's not on supernatural display in this, in this book in a way that we would expect. God's name is not even mentioned in this book. And yet when you step back and look at the book as a whole, and particularly how the story of Esther fits into God's larger plan of redemption through Jesus, God's active involvement is undeniable. His fingerprints are all over the place because we see in the book of Esther a very long list of circumstances, coincidences, happening. Uh, These circumstances uh, are being woven together by God to form a tapestry of salvation and redemption for the people. And this is one reason why the book of Esther should be studied and should be a great source of encouragement to you and to me, because your life is more like the book of Esther than the book of Exodus. Nobody in this room is seeing seas being parted, I don't think. Nobody in this room has has witnessed a pillar of supernatural fire or a burning bush that is not consumed. The overwhelming majority of our lives, we experience normal, ordinary life full of things that are part of the natural world order, not the supernatural world. We get up, we go to our jobs, we get married, we have families, we meet new people, Some people love us, some people can't stand us, vice versa. We're made aware of certain opportunities, some of those opportunities end in success, some don't work out, our cars break down, we get promoted at work, we get fired, we get rich, we slide into poverty, so on and on and on. Just natural life that doesn't require any kind of obvious overt supernatural display or supernatural intervention or explanation. And therefore, it is tempting to think that God is not working in our lives. Book of Esther reminds us that that's not the case. Book of Esther reminds us uh, what Solomon in his wisdom wrote a long time ago in Proverbs 16, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. And as we discussed last week, You are where you are because God has brought you to where you are for a reason and for a purpose to serve and glorify Him in a certain way. And and He brings us to the place we are without violating our ability to, to make choices and decisions. And in some ways, that's more miraculous than obviously supernatural events. Yes, parting the Red Sea is awesome, but in another sense... It is more awesome that we have a world full of billions of billions of people living and moving and doing whatever they decide to do, and yet in the end, God accomplishes everything God planned to accomplish. Whatever He has ordained to be is. If you can't figure out how that works, don't sweat it. Just relax. It's above your pay grade. Just believe what the Bible says. And take comfort in the fact that he's got the whole world in his hands. Both the big world and your little world. And in the book of Esther, we see an example of harmony between the the free agency of man 
making choices, doing what he wants according to his nature. We see harmony between that and the sovereignty of God. And those two doctrines put together should give you and I great hope, especially when God seems hidden. Now, last week's text, Esther 4, ended in a real cliffhanger. In chapter 4, our heroine Esther was confronted with a very difficult decision, wasn't she? Her cousin Mordecai alerted her to Haman's plot to exterminate the entire Jewish race. And what's more, Haman convinced Esther's husband, King Xerxes, to agree to and endorse this wicked plot. And Xerxes issued a decree that all Jews, young and old, men, women, children, would be utterly destroyed and plundered on a on a certain day around the end of the year. And Mordecai convinces Esther that she must go to the king and attempt to stop the destruction of her people. And at the end of chapter 4, a dramatic change comes over Esther. It's interesting. Once she believes that her life and her circumstances and her position have come about not by random chance, but through God's sovereign providence, she realizes that she has a purpose bigger than herself. And the realization of a purpose gives her strength and courage and resolve. And she chooses to come out of the shadows and to stop trying to live in two different worlds. To stop sitting on the fence and to identify with her people and with her God. Because if you recall, she's been keeping her Jewish identity a secret. But now, she's ready to go public. Xerxes may be king of Persia But Esther is now ready to cast her ultimate allegiance to the king of kings, the Lord God of Israel, and the king of the world, even to the point of death. Hence her last words in chapter 4, verse 16, she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And Esther's not being dramatic when she says this. To approach the king unsummoned was against the law. If you back up to chapter 4, verse 11, Esther says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. Things aren't great between me and hubby right now. So this highlights both the perilous situation of Esther and the newfound courage and commitment of Esther, better to stand with her people and her God and, and die than keep silence, enjoy the comfort and security of the palace, and hope that she might experience a longer life. So, with that cliffhanger, why don't you stand with me? We're going to read Esther chapter 5 now. We like to stand in honor of the reading of the words of God. Esther chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, "'What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request?' It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. 
So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize this morning that your word endures forever. Father, we recognize that what we have just read has the same kind of authority that, that Jesus Christ, if he were standing here in the flesh talking to us, would have. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to approach this word with, with reverence, with awe, and with expectation. Expectation that you have a blessing for us in the Word. And Father, above all else, I pray that our next few moments together would honor and glorify Christ as I speak and my friends listen. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So at this point in the, in the story of Esther, where I'd like us to consider three things that, that we can learn from chapter 5, and the first thing that we can learn is the we can see the humility and the subtlety of Esther. Uh, it, it's worth noting. I, I'll give you all three up front, just, just so you know, if you, you want to fill in the blanks. We're going to look at the, uh, the humility and the subtlety of Esther. We're going to look at the suicidal stupidity of Haman and the supreme sovereignty of God. But first, the humility and subtlety of Esther. It's worth noting that, that even though Esther is about to act righteously, and she's about to take up a righteous cause, namely the rescue of her race from extinction, even with that on the line, she's not presumptuous. But she's crafted a, a well-thought-out, subtle, wise, and tactful plan which includes humility, meekness, and respect. And Esther's approach is a significant lesson for us. You know, some Christians have all the subtle and tact of a rampaging bull in a china shop especially if that Christian is convinced that he is right and God is on his side. You know Christians like this. You may even be like this. Well, this is right. 
I'm doing the will of God, and something must be done. I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter how it's done. And you've got Christians who are combative and brusque, and they just rampage into and out of situations without any thought to humility and meekness and respect for others, without any thought of the collateral damage they may cause by their lack of sensitivity without any concern of whether they might harm their cause by their thoughtlessness, leaving a trail of broken relationships in their wake. Because all that matters to them is that they're right. Sound familiar? And yet Esther doesn't do that. Esther has the wisdom to recognize that even if you are right, and even if God is on your side, it doesn't exempt you from common sense. And it certainly doesn't exempt you from humility and godly meekness, and respect for authority. Look at verse 1 there. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. She puts on her very best and, and most dignified attire, which is a sign of respect for the king. And look at this. The king is pleased to see her. Verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. There was clearly something about this girl that from the very beginning uh, had really grabbed and captivated the king. And certainly her unusual beauty would be a part of that. Uh, As the king in chapter 2 looked out over all these other girls, she stood out amongst them all and, and he made her queen. But beyond her beauty, you get the sense that there's something beyond her looks That's captivating. You get a hint of that in chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all. Indeed, not only the king, but others in the court found her unusually special. In chapter 2, verse 15, it says that Esther was winning favor in the eyes, not just of the king, but of all. And I think here in chapter 5, we begin to discover that there is more to Esther than meets the eye. She's more than just a pretty face. As we're going to see in a moment, uh, in her interactions with the king, in the subtlety of her plan, and the cleverness of her approach, in her humility, in her bravery, in daring to even enter the court in the first place, risking her life, she's a special person. And I think the king, from day one to this moment, finds Esther simply irresistible to quote the very wise philosopher Robert Palmer. There's maybe about two 80s music fans who got that reference. Nobody else did. That's fine. Her subtlety and her humility is seen in in her clothing and her approach to the king, but also notice her humble demeanor. She responds according to proper protocol. You see this in verse 2. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. That's important. She doesn't just blow this off and say, this is ridiculous. The king has already extended the scepter. He's already showed favor to me. We don't need to jump through all these stupid traditional hoops. My people are about to be killed. No. She recognized she was going in here in a perilous situation, and when he extended his grace to her, she responded in an appropriate and respectful manner. So Esther's humble demeanor is expressed in her clothes and in her respectful reception of the king's grace, and the the king has favor for her. Look at verse 3. King said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even the half of my kingdom. 
By the way, he, he wasn't going to give the half of his kingdom up to anybody. That's, that's a common expression amongst ancient kings. Xerxes isn't going to actually literally do that. It's an expression that reflects the fact that the king is pleased with you and is currently predisposed to extreme generosity. And we see more of Esther's subtlety and humility expressed in her speech, verse 4. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Even her very words convey the tone of honor and respect. She says, if it pleases the king. There's deep humility and respect in how she addresses the king. Many, many Christians struggle in the area of speech. Some of the nastiest people I've known are people who call themselves Christians. It's amazing the venom that I've heard come out of the mouths of God's people. Notice that Esther doesn't come into the court saying, listen, you wicked, pompous, foolish, unjust king. Save my people and put Haman's head on a pole. Now, those things are true. The king was wicked and pompous and unjust, and I'm sure Esther would have thought Haman's head would have looked quite nice on a pole. Too true. But that that brash, direct approach would not have been good, would not have been helpful. Now, some people might say, well, well, I'm I'm not subtle. That's just not in my personality. I just tell it like it is. I'm like Moses who just burst into the king's throne room and said, let my people go. Well, guess what? You're not Moses. You didn't get a word from the Lord like Moses did. Instead, you have a word from the Lord that says this, walk in wisdom. Let your speech always be gracious. Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. That's Colossians chapter 4. That's your word from the Lord. And you know what? That might be one of the most ignored verses in the entire Bible by Christians. Especially when Christians get on Facebook. Especially when they start complaining about the president. Or some leader or person they don't like. I grow weary of Christians blaming their obnoxiousness on their personality. We act like that's an excuse. We look, at, we look at scriptures about murder and adultery, and we take those very seriously. But then we look at scriptures like the one in Colossians chapter 4, and we act like that's optional. It's not optional. God, God, God didn't save you to remain exactly as you are. Oh, well, this is just my personality. God's purpose in redemption is to save you from who you are and transform you into the likeness of Christ. Oh, if we could have more of the humility and graciousness of an Esther. Who knows how much more God might use your humble demeanor and speech to affect others for good. Certainly the king is being affected here in chapter 5. Her wonderful attire, her humble countenance, her gracious speech is working on the king, isn't it? His heart is softening, and he's pleased with her, and he's prepared to, to be very generous with her. I'll give you anything, even the half of my kingdom. Now, at this point... What would you do if you were Esther? When the king expresses that kind of generosity, I'll give you anything you want. What what would you have done in that moment? If I was Esther, I would have said, awesome. Here's what I want. Save my people. Kill that rascal Haman. That's what I would have done. That's not what Esther does. In her wisdom, she senses the time is not right. And she continues down this very humble and delicate and subtle path. Verse 4. 
Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So Esther seeks to show even further honor and service to the king. And, and she's so wise. We, we all know the, that the way to a man's heart is, is what? His stomach, right? So Esther, in her wisdom, knows that this will be a great way to respect the king and put him in a position where he will, be, he will, he will better receive what Esther has to say. That's smart. That's wisdom. That's tact and subtlety and brilliance. Verse 5. I'm reminded, by the way, I should say, of the, of the Scripture from where, 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 the, where the Lord says, be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Oh, how we need more wisdom in our interactions with people. Verse 5, then the king said, bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Esther is brilliant. This big, bad, powerful king is becoming putty in her hands. And is it not interesting? So the king and Haman, it says, uh, it says that, he, the king says, we, so let, we may do as Esther has asked. Who has been calling the shots, you know, up to this point? Other people have. The king kicking his queen off the throne and making these decrees, or people like Haman. Esther seems kind of a passive victim sometimes, but now they're doing what she says. Now, you're not trying to gain an audience with a king. You're not trying to influence people in positions of power who rule empires. But there are people in your life. There are challenging relationships and situations that you have with others. There are people who may stand in the way of what you think is good and right and God-honoring. And the temptation can be uh, to come at them hard with a a verbal smackdown and overwhelm them with arguments and verbal attacks and nagging and fighting and anger and to put people down. That's the world's way of doing things. New Testament shows us a better way. For example, the Apostle Peter, writing to Christian wives in 1 Peter 3, gives helpful wisdom on how to help their unbelieving husbands. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Well, I thought God was sovereign over salvation. Oh, oh, He is. But we see here in 1 Peter 3 that God sometimes in His sovereignty uses the means of our attitudes, of our demeanor, of our interactions with other people. In the previous chapter in, in 1 Peter, he, he, he writes to all Christians and exhorts us to be submissive to governing authorities, to live honorable lives, to even honor the emperor himself who in Peter's time was a wicked, pagan, egomaniac. Peter says, such lives will silence the talk of foolish and ignorant people and will even lead some to glorify God. You see, God can use the very demeanor and the character of a person to influence someone for good, even to influence them toward salvation. 
And here in Esther, God is using her demeanor and attitude and humble character to influence the king towards the salvation of her people. As you continue through the chapter, the king is pleased. Both he and Haman, they go to this private feast. And when the king asks a second time, what is Esther's wish? Esther deems it wise to put, put it off one more time and increase the honor to the king and Haman by giving one more feast, at which time Esther will reveal her, her heart. So that's that's Esther. That's the humility and subtlety of Esther. But we need to focus our attention now on the suicidal stupidity of Haman. The humility and subtlety of Esther is contrasted with the foolish pride of Haman. If in Esther we are encouraged to wisdom and discernment and humility, in Haman we are warned of the dangers of pride. The problem with Haman is that he thinks he's awesome. He thinks he's all that. And the path of of egotism and arrogance is a path that leads to doom. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Wow. That's a pretty stinging judgment, isn't it? I mean, in the book of Proverbs, fools are not spoken of very highly. And yet, if you are arrogant... If you hold yourself in high esteem and think you are great, the average run-of-the-mill fool is a better person than you are. Look at verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Why? Because his life and his happiness revolves around what others think of him. You see, Haman did not simply crave significance. He craved other people seeing him as significance. Slight difference between the two. But that's where he received meaning and purpose in life. In fact, that was his idol. You see, you don't have to bow down to a statue to be an idol worshiper. One writer gives a helpful definition of an idol. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek uh, to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. And Haman worshiped the notion of being seen as great and important. His life revolved around it. His sense of identity hinged on it. His joy depended on it. His sense of deep satisfaction was dependent on it. That's why verse 9 says, Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Because he had been greatly honored and esteemed. Twice now, he's been invited to private banquets with the king himself, uh, thrown by the queen herself. Haman felt awesome. He was on the inside group. He was the big man on campus, and he was getting recognized as such. His ego was puffed up and inflated. That's why the text says he went out joyful and glad of heart, and that's why right after that it says in verse 9, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gates, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Fifteen seconds ago, he's on top of the world. Now he is 
on the very bottom, filled with wrath. So here we go again, another unpleasant encounter with Mordecai. And suddenly, all of the things that had initially made him so happy, they don't matter. Haman, next to the king, this is the irony here, Haman, next to the king, was the most powerful man in the empire. Xerxes had set Haman's throne above the throne of all of his other officials. He was the right-hand man of Xerxes. He had enormous wealth and prestige and position. He's received the high honor of being, being invited to two private royal banquets. In chapter 2, we read that all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. And by the way, I can't help but wonder why the king had to command it. (laughs) I wonder if he felt like he had to command that for two reasons. One, nobody really liked Haman, so they had to be forced to bow. Two, the king is thinking, Haman's so insecure and so emotionally unstable that I better force people to honor this man or else he's just going to lose it. And that's exactly what happens. It happened in chapter 3. Everyone else bowed down except Mordecai, and Haman decides to respond by killing every single Jew in the empire. You talk about overreacting. And and we see it here in chapter 5. Haman walks out of the palace, held in the highest esteem, feeling good, whistling. Then he encounters Mordecai, who once again does not bow and show respect, and, and Haman becomes emotionally unhinged. He can't handle it. It says he's, he's filled with wrath. By the way, you want a clue to what idols you have in your heart? It's not only the thing that your life and your joy revolves around. Another red flag are those things that when threatened, when taken away, make you really, really mad. We see this with Haman. When his idol is fed, he's exceedingly happy. When his idol is challenged, he becomes exceedingly angry. Again, his life, meaning, and purpose rises and falls based on his idol. And it's the same with all of us. We all have idols that we struggle against. Don't think for a minute, just because you're a Christian means that you are free from the temptation to be an idolater. To live as if other things are more important than God. To bank your hopes for ultimate happiness and satisfaction and meaning on things other than God. Some of you this morning live in fear of what other people think about you. Whether your day is good or bad totally depends on how you feel other people perceive you. If you've gotten some compliments, some pats on the back, you're doing great. If no one recognizes your accomplishments or if you think someone disagrees with you and thinks you're wrong, you can't take it. Guess what? That's your idol. You just found it. There may be others that struggle with different idols. Could could be a whole host of things that you may be chasing after and things that are becoming a superior priority over God and His glory. And when you are enslaved to an idol, it is never enough. You are never truly satisfied. You are always craving more and more and more. That's what we see with Haman. All the other accolades and honors are not enough because little Mordecai is now dissing him. And he can't handle that. Now, when the idol rears its ugly head, we've got two choices. We can kill it and seek satisfaction and delight in God instead, or we can prop up our idol all the more. And that's what Haman does. Verse 10. 
Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends <laughs> and his wife, Zeresh. He's, he's, he's surrounding himself with some yes-men here. And Haman recounted to them. <laughs> this is amazing. He, he's going to now tell them how great he is. And everybody, come over. Come, come to my house. We're going to have dinner together tonight. And what we're going to do is talk about how awesome I am. That's what Haman's doing here. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. I get, and I guess all these other guys are just supposed to just sit around and say, oh man, you're so great. He, he surrounds himself with friends and family to stroke his ego. He's using his friends to get more of what he wants, honor. He wants people to think he's awesome. He wants to be seen as great. Look how great I am. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at all my money. Look at how many kids I have. I don't think his wife needed to be reminded of that one. Look at me, admire me, adore me, be in awe of me. And all of these friends there, are just, they're just supposed to say, yes, Haman, you're amazing. You're incredible. We, we are just honored to be counted as one of your friends. We are, just, we are blessed to be just breathing the same air as you right now, O Haman. We are in awe of your awesomeness, O Haman. Haman is hungry for praise and honor, and yet it is not enough. Verse 13, look at that. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then, we are introduced to one of the most lovely and adorable characters in the whole Bible, Mrs. Haman. His wife, Zeresh, who just gives wonderful, godly advice. Look at verse 14. Let, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Isn't that sweet? This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. I wonder what he saw in Zeresh. This is a poor wife, my friends. You see, Haman's ego, the stakes are high here. Haman's ego is leading him to destruction. And Zeresh is pushing him down that path even faster with this ridiculous idea. Make a gallows 50 cubits high. You know how high that is? 75 feet. A gallows that is big enough to match his ego and hang Mordecai on it. What Haman really needed was a wife to give him godly counsel, to, to gently, carefully warn him of his dangerous path and to point him to God, to tell him that all of this ego stroking will never ultimately give him what he needs. That only God can satisfy the deepest needs of his soul. What Haman really needed was one of his friends to share with him Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. In my life are some of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible. And when I first read them and really thought about what they meant, it just knocked me to the floor. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 says, be appalled, O heavens, at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, 
Okay, so God's going to tell us something shocking and appalling, something that should just floor us. And so you're, you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, what is he about to say? You know, what, what is the most evil thing in the world? Murder? You know, who, who, what is he talking about here? And then he tells you what the evil is. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says that's the essence of evil. Turning away from God as the source of life and satisfaction and turning to other things. You see, Haman does what all of us tend to do if left to ourselves. With, with thirsty, parched souls, we turn away from God and we construct broken, leaky cisterns to satisfy us. Cisterns of sex. Cisterns of power, cisterns of wealth, cisterns of possessions, of comfort, of approval, of applause, of family, of career, of education. All of those can be idols, and we turn to those things expecting them to give us what only God can give us. But they never satisfy. They're never enough. And all the while, with our heads in these cisterns, licking sludge water on the bottom... All the while we're doing that, behind us is an exploding fountain of all-satisfying, life-giving, thirst-quenching water that will touch the deepest needs of our soul. That's why Jesus says later on, whoever comes to me will never thirst. There's satisfaction in the Lord. And I call Haman's foolishness suicidal because a craving... I want you to listen to this. A craving for the approval and the applause of men can destroy you spiritually. Do you realize how serious this is? Say, what are you talking about? Destroy you spiritually. I'm talking about what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 44, where he turns to the crowd and he says, How can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. That verse is scary. That verse is terrifying. Jesus is saying that the craving for the approval from others prevents belief in Jesus. He says, how can you believe? And belief in Jesus is the only way for us to be saved from our sins. That's why I say the craving for approval from others is suicidal. It can lead to spiritual destruction. It can keep you out of heaven. If what man thinks is the ultimate priority in your life, as opposed to what God thinks, you're on a dangerous path. And poor Haman is on a path to destruction. Not only is his spiritual destruction imminent, but as we move on in Esther, we will see that his pride will cost him his physical life very, very soon. The humility and subtlety of Esther, the suicidal stupidity of Haman. But above it all is the supreme sovereignty of God. I want to end our look at Esther 5 with a brief reminder of what is one of the main points of this book. The overarching sovereignty of God. You have Haman and Esther and Xerxes and all the characters in this book doing what they do. And yet behind the scenes... God is working through his quiet providence to bring about salvation for his people. We find the weaving together of man's choices and God's sovereign control to accomplish his plans. 
And remember, <laughs> coincidences, the coincidences that we find in this book are not coincidences. They are God's way of remaining anonymous. In chapter 1, Queen Vashti chose to disobey the king, which resulted in her removal from the throne. She chose to do that. The king chose to kick Vashti off the throne. That was his decision, his free action. Esther is an orphan, and Mordecai decides to adopt her. Coincidence or design? The king of his own free will elevates Esther to be the queen of the land. Mordecai chooses to hang out by the king's gates. He didn't have to do that. That was his choice. He picks up important information about a plot to kill the king. He uses the information to save the king's life. And so the coincidences pile up. And as we read on, we find that behind all of these human decisions and actions, there is a divine power at work in such a way that it cannot be ultimately explained or thwarted. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that in reality, it's either one or the other. You either have to believe in the freedom of man to make his own choices and decisions, or you have to believe in the complete sovereign control of God over all things. It's not either or, it's both and. And don't take my word for it, read the Bible. We see this all over the place. Esther, through her subtlety, her planning, her humility, her wisdom, moves the king to a certain direction in this chapter. That's true. But on the other hand, We read Proverbs 21 that says the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Many Christians typically have no problem affirming the the free choices of man. We typically have a problem affirming the overarching sovereignty of God over all things. But believe me, he is sovereign over all things. Psalm 115.3 says our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's not sovereignty. I don't know what is. Jesus says, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. If even the death of a sparrow falls within the sphere of God's sovereign, controlling providence, then certainly does the death of Esther's parents, who are worth more than many sparrows. Their death, which led to her adoption by Mordecai, and the Esther-Mordecai connection leads to the salvation of the Jews, which 500 years later leads to the birth of a girl named Mary, which leads to the birth of Jesus, which leads to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which leads to the beginning of the gospel, which leads to you many years later hearing the gospel, which leads to you believing, which leads to you being saved. Is your salvation coincidence? Is it a stroke of luck? Chance? In Esther 5, we have a mighty king, an influential queen, and a powerful fool. And yet all the while behind it, God reigns, and God does everything that He pleases. Steve read Revelation 11 earlier, where we hear the host of heaven crying out and saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. We look forward to a time where, as Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But even though that time has not yet come, don't believe for a minute that God is not reigning right now. Book of Esther is showing us that clear that is showing that very clearly that no matter what sinful man does, God always wins, God always gets his way. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And is it not amazing the contrast between King Xerxes and King Jesus? Xerxes is proud 
He's an arrogant king who is seeking to destroy the lives of the people of God. Jesus is a humble king who gives up his own life to preserve the people of God. And this great king died on a cross, taking the punishment for sinners in the place of sinners as a substitute, so that all who trust in him shall not be destroyed, but shall have everlasting life. I hope that you're placing your trust in this king. And if you have, how comforting it is to know that your life and my life are in the hands of a God who not only has good intentions and good plans for his people, but because he is sovereign, he also has the power to make sure that every good plan he has for you will actually come to pass, even in the midst of countless coincidences, because coincidences are not random. They are God's way of remaining anonymous. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to cast all of our trust and all of our cares upon you. Father, I pray that you would help us to cast down the idols of our hearts. We all struggle with these things to one degree or another, but help us increase in our, in our commitment and our passion and our love for you more and more. May we experience an ever-increasing life where you are obviously ruling and reigning over our hearts to the degree that it affects everything that we do. And Father, thank you that unlike the despots of the world, Jesus Christ is a good king. He's a good Lord. He's a good Savior. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that we do not deserve, yet you richly give. In Jesus' name, amen.